Our reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading at verse 8. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. This is God's word. Sarah, thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. I'm Simon, one of the ministers here. Um, There are some complicated bits at the end of that passage. But actually, the passage as a whole is a wonderful encouragement, uh, a passage that helps to remove our fears. So let me pray as we look at it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this great word to us in this chapter. We thank you for the way it speaks to us. We pray that you'd help us to understand it more. Help us to know you better. And uh, would we be sent out today with our fears calmed and our love in Jesus uh, warmed up. For your name's sake. Amen. Now you've probably heard the one about uh, Johnny waking up in the morning and saying, Mum, I don't want to go to school today. Why don't you want to go to school? Well, I'm scared. All the kids hate me. All the teachers pick on me. Johnny, you've still got to go to school. Why do I have to go, Mum? You're the headmaster. (laughs) It is possible as Christians to be afraid of what God calls us to do every day. Uh, To be afraid of the kind of things that one Peter calls us to do. Uh, We're called in the language of this passage in verse uh, 9 to bless a hostile world. 
We're to not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called. We're called to bless a world that can be very, very hostile at times, and that can make us afraid. It can make us want to stay in bed and just not go, not do it. And maybe you've had something of that reaction if you've been with us these last few weeks in 1 Peter. In some ways, this is a scary letter in terms of what it calls us to. We're told that being Christians, being in Christ, makes us, in a sense, aliens and strangers to the world. But even when the world is hostile to those who are aliens and strangers like us, we're to live lives of blessing. Back in uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter began a long section uh, describing how we're to live as aliens and strangers. So chapter t- uh, 2 and verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And passage by passage since then, it's been about how to live good lives in uh, good lives that bless the world in various domains within uh, uh, submission to authorities, submission to our employers, submission within families, even when the world, those authorities, can often be hostile. And maybe at times as we've gone through that, you've thought, I, I, I don't know if I can do that. Sometimes I'm afraid of the consequences of the world and what it might do to me. I was reading recently about um, the poet and playwright uh, T.S. Eliot, and uh, he became a Christian uh, back in the early 20th century. And uh, his fellow author, Virginia Woolf, wrote to her sister about him. And she wrote this. I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with poor dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us from this day forward. He has become a Christian believes in God and immortality, and goes to church. I was really shocked. A corpse would seem to me more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Wow, strong words. That was back in 1927. If anything, it's more fashionable today to ridicule Christians and treat them with anger and uh, a demeaning tone. And we're in Britain where, frankly, people haven't really died for being Christians for quite some time. There are places in the world where trying to bless the world as a Christian puts your life in immediate danger. And you might just think, gosh, Jesus, you are asking too much at this point. It's a great principle to go out and bless the world for your sake. But the consequences can be pretty fearful. If I live this way, I dread to think what the world will do to me. I'm afraid. Well, this passage is for you, for me, for us, if we feel like that. It says to us, I know you're afraid. You don't need to be. You can bless the world in Christ. Maybe uh, you're here as someone who wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. You're, You're looking in, you're considering things for yourself, and to be frank, you're slightly fearful of the consequences of becoming a Christian. You're aware of the ways that Christians can sometimes be treated. You wonder what it might do to your friendships, your family relationships, even your career prospects. And this passage says to you as well, I I know that's a fear, but don't be afraid. There are good reasons for following Christ and for not being afraid. So this is uh, Peter's advice to the fearful Christian. Three things 
from this passage. Expect God's blessing. Fear nothing but Christ. And remember, Jesus saves. Expect God's blessing. Fear nothing but Christ. And remember, Jesus saves. So let's dive in. Verses 8 to 14a, first of all. Expect God's blessing. These verses are something of a manifesto, summing up the whole of what Peter has uh, taught us so far about living good lives in the world. He says in verse 8, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Uh, Verse 9, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called. Blessing others by doing good is what we are called to do by God. And it starts within the church. It starts here. Verse 8, all of you. And the reference there to brothers as well. The blessing starts amongst Christians, transforming our relationships before it goes out to the world. All of God's people showing internally to one another the kind of qualities that we're then to show to the outside world. It starts here. It starts with us, Christchurch Mayfair. Uh, Christians, we're still sinful, so our relationships are still subject to breakdown, to hostility, So we've got to work at peacekeeping and peacemaking amongst ourselves here in church. If things go wrong here amongst God's people, it's going to be very hard to then go and bless the world with these qualities. But then Peter takes us out into the world so that Christians can be a blessing there too. There will be suffering to deal with, including evil and insults in verse 9 and also verse 13 being harmed if we're eager for doing what is right, what is good. Now, when those things come our way, what are we to do? We're not to respond in kind. It's not tit-for-tat revenge or allowing ourselves to be drawn into a a trade-off of insults, but a determination to keep blessing others, keep blessing the world, even if we suffer for it. So how are we going to do this if we're afraid of those consequences? Expect God's blessing. So verse 9. To this you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. Same again in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Expect God to bless you if you are being a blessing to others. That's what these verses say. That's the point of the big quote in the middle from uh, Psalm 34 in verses 10 to 12. It's what King David believed in the Old Testament. He was in a very, very sticky situation, um, which we don't need to go into, but he was facing hostility on all sides. And he thought to himself, verse 10, I love life. I want to see good days. What am I going to do? The obvious pragmatic answers would be, keep your head down. Uh, compromise, keep quiet about God, don't stick out like a sore thumb in the world, uh, because that might help you avoid the hostility of the world. Like Johnny, stay in bed, don't go. But David determines to keep doing good. Verse 10, I need to keep my tongue from evil, my lips from deceitful speech. Verse 11, I need to turn from evil and do good. I need to seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because verse 12, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God blesses those who bless the world, and David knew that. 
Now, what does that blessing mean? Does it mean escape from suffering? Does it mean that we won't face that hostility after all? Well, yes and no. Sometimes yes. Sometimes yes. Sometimes Christians uh, can influence the world with their harmony, their sympathy, their love, their non-retaliation, their non-revenge, and so on. And when that happens, everyone is blessed. The world is blessed and Christians are blessed as well. Uh, Do you remember the violent revenge that broke out amongst uh, a lot of Islamic societies around the world when those cartoons of Muhammad were published uh, in Denmark? And there were Danish embassies firebombed. About a hundred people, I think, died overall in, in violence and skirmishes around the world. Many societies around the world have revenge as the norm. That is just the normal thing to do. But not generally in societies where the gospel, the Christian message, has taken hold. That is a great blessing that to us, To our society, it seems odd, uh, it seems terrible to have that violent pattern of revenge. That is an example of where the good influence of Christians has blessed everyone in society, has changed our society so that revenge is uh, somewhat taken out of the picture. There's that rhetorical question in verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? It ought to be that doing good wins us favour in the eyes of those who see it, uh, in the eyes of the various authorities that Peter's been going through. Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes that how it, that's how it works. Good behavior helps government to view Christians with favor. It helps employers or family authorities of this world to look with favor upon Christians. Sometimes. Sometimes it works that way. So sometimes, yes, God's blessing involves escape from suffering, but Sometimes, often, no, it doesn't. And most of Peter's emphasis in these chapters is not to promise that suffering will be removed, but to help us keep going when it happens. Now, even in those circumstances where we meet that suffering and, and that hostility, we're to look to God and expect his blessing like David did. So if you face insults and evil from governments or colleagues or family, and you keep seeking to bless you can still expect God's blessing. His eyes are still on you now. He still hears your prayers now. In one sense, you'll be blessed immediately by the clear conscience that you'll maintain by not compromising, by not ducking under. If you've carried on doing good and not compromised. But in another sense, there's an ultimate blessing that is still to come. And we'll speak of that when we get to the end of the the passage in verses 18 to 22. But God will bless those who are a blessing to the world. So first thing, if you're fearful, expect God's blessing. Second, fear nothing but Christ. And this is verses 14b to 17. Fear nothing but Christ. Peter's next line uh, in the second half of verse 14 is this. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And then there's the antidote in verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Don't fear what they fear, but set apart Christ as Lord. If you're afraid to bless the world, then maybe this is a question to ask yourself. What do I fear most? Or same kind of question. Who or what is really Lord in my life? 
So let's ask that question. What are you most afraid of? What, what is the worst case scenario in your mind? The thing that you would do anything to avoid? Is it losing your job or, or perhaps your long-term career prospects? That would be terrible. With enormous consequences, of course. You could lose the house. You could lose the comfort, the holidays. You could lose the lifestyle that you've got used to. Is that your greatest fear? To lose your job or your job prospects? Maybe it's less material things than that. Maybe it's losing your reputation. Uh, A little bit like T.S. Eliot being thought of as an idiot by people that you admire. Written off by people whose opinion you value very, very highly. That would be terrible. Perhaps your biggest fear is losing your health, even your life. Of course these things are dreadful, horrible to contemplate. These are the kinds of things that everybody fears, whether it's spoken or unspoken. But Peter says, don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened by those things. Extraordinary as it is to say, there is something bigger, more significant than any of those fears and worries. Much more important than your career, your house, your reputation, your health, even your life in this world. Don't fear ultimately losing those things. They shouldn't be the most important things to us. Fear Christ. Except Peter puts it more positively. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Same thing. Don't let job and house and reputation and health be the Lord of your heart. That is Christ's place. Put him first. Fear him first. Love him first. And if we do that, Peter says, if Christ is Lord in your heart, if your life is built around him so that your hopes and ambitions are centered upon him, then you'll be ready to talk about him, to bless the world by talking about Christ. So verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In order to bless the world, if you fear Jesus above everything else, Talk about Jesus. Because if Jesus is your Lord, then he will be the answer to your friend's questions to you, in a general sense. Now think about this. Somebody asks you, why did you choose to live in that neighborhood? Maybe your answer could be, it seemed like the church there was the best one that I could get involved with and and serve at. They ask you, Why did you spend that money in that particular way or make that financial decision? Well, maybe you could answer, well, of course, there's pragmatic reasons for that, but ultimately I want to be a good steward of the resources that I believe Jesus has given me in my life. So I want to honor him with my financial decisions. See, if Jesus is Lord of your life, if he is your number one fear, your number one love in your heart, then actually he ultimately will be the answer to those big questions that other people will ask you. The more Jesus really is the Lord of your life, the more you'll speak of him. Answer people's questions with Jesus. Show that your hope is in him. But it feels really awkward to mention Jesus. I don't know if I can talk like that. I'm afraid of what kind of response I'm going to get. I'm worried about what people might think of me or say about me behind my back or even to my face or what it would do to my prospects. Peter says, yep, yep, you're right. That is what they might do. Verse 16. 
they may speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. You might get people slandering you. That might happen. Again, not always. But trust me, you won't always get a positive reaction by talking about Jesus. But again, remember, you're not just talking about Jesus because you have to, but because he's Lord of your heart and because you want to bless the world in the way that he's called you to do. Verse 16 says of those who speak maliciously against our good behavior in Christ, maybe they'll be ashamed of their slander. That's the hope. Maybe underneath all of that dismissive hostility, which is all we might get to see on the surface, Maybe underneath all of that, there'll be a dawning realization of the truth. They'll recognize that you are saying what you believe is true, and actually there's something in it. That perhaps Jesus is Lord. And maybe over years and years of rebuffing your conversation and ridiculing what you say, perhaps their conscience will lead them eventually to Christ. And then they really will be blessed. We will have blessed the world as they find their salvation in him, despite the hostility that we experienced in the process. That's the point of doing this. Bless people by daring to talk of Christ. And Peter drops in two bits of practical information, practical advice for talking about Jesus from what Peter says here. Be reasonable, be respectful. If you're talking to people about Jesus, be reasonable, be respectful. First, be reasonable. Peter says, give the reason for the hope that you have. The Christian faith is reasonable. It stands up to scrutiny on every level. Uh, Some of the most brilliant minds in history have engaged with the Bible, studied it, uh, subjected it to rigorous examination in terms of its historicity, its internal coherence, and its uh, matching up with our experience of the world. And many, many of those great minds have concluded that believing in Jesus as Lord makes the most rational, logical sense. It is the most compelling position to take. Now, if you're a Christian today, I probably don't need to tell you that your faith is reasonable, but maybe I need to encourage you to be reasonable when you talk about your faith. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, it would be a shame to be a degree-level business person or a degree-level scientist or a degree-level musician, but a primary school-level Christian, so that you, you basically can't explain what you know about Jesus. That would be a shame, wouldn't it? No wonder uh, that would bring ridicule on us, and probably rightly so. If someone asks you why you think Jesus is God, or why you believe Jesus rose from the dead, could you give something of an answer? God doesn't just want us to say, uh, I tell you what, come to my church and find out. Or um, there's this great course called Christianity Explored that we do at my church. Come and you'll get all your questions answered. Now, those are great things to say at various points in your conversation. Please do say those. Those would be good ways to answer. But in terms of this passage, he would prefer us, if we can, to talk about those things ourselves. So be prepared. Maybe read some great Christian books on these things. A couple of recommendations. Um, This one is excellent. Uh, Naked God by Martin Ayers, a fantastic defense of why we believe uh, what the Bible says. Another one that we always have on the bookstall, apart from this morning, so I can't wave it at you. Tim Keller's Reason for God is fantastic. If you want to just stock up in your mind some helpful reasons, uh, you can give those books away. They're great for giving away, but great for you to read as well, to understand. Or just wander over to the bookstall, have a browse, spot something that might fill a gap 
in your ability to reason or explain what you believe and pick it up, have a read. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, it's really important for you to know that believing in Jesus is a logically reasonable, historically defensible thing to do. Uh, You don't just shut your mind and close your eyes and uh, take a blind leap of faith to become a Christian. There are things to be convinced of. Again, that Jesus is God, that he rose from the dead, would be two of the most important things you could look into and be convinced of either way for yourself. Uh, Those two books I mentioned might be great for you. Uh, But also talk to a Christian friend. Hopefully they'll be able to give an answer for uh, a reason for the hope that they have. So be reasonable. Second bit of advice, be respectful. Peter says, give the reason, but, uh, verse uh, 15, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Speak in a way that shows love and compassion, that shows those characteristics that the first bit of the passage was speaking about. Do nothing deceitful, no browbeating or manipulation, or bully tactics. Uh, speak in a way that doesn't allow yourself to be dragged into just a slanging match of insults. Respecting people means being very careful with uh, robust styles of conversation. Peter's not uh, forbidding robust debate, uh, or high-spirited banter, or strong emphatic language, and there's plenty of all those things in his letters, believe me. But be very careful about those kinds of conversation. Seek to to win the other person over, to love them, rather than just win the argument. Remember, this is about blessing the world. It means doing a lot of listening so that we're not just forcing a load of information down people's throats, but what we say could actually engage relevantly with the person and their questions. So be reasonable, be respectful. I guess we need to hear all of those things. So fear Christ alone, even if we're slandered for it. That's right at the heart of the way we're called to bless the world. So expect God's blessing, fear Christ alone, finally. And this is the the clincher, really, of uh, of how we can be fearless. Remember, Jesus saves. Verses 18 to 22. There's some complicated stuff in these verses. The essence of it is very, very simple and very, very wonderful. Jesus saves. How can I bless the world when I'm afraid? Jesus saves. Verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now this is a fantastic verse. It is wonderful. It is loved by many. It is on many posters. It is uh, used in many a talk to summarize the Christian faith. It is a brilliant one-line description of what Jesus did dying on the cross for us and what he achieved through that. There's uh, an event, there's an explanation, there's an outcome, if we can break it down like that. There's the event, Christ died, one man nailed to a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. That event is the great turning point of everything the Bible teaches us. An event celebrated around the world, wherever you see a cross on a church or on a flag or on a necklace and so on, that is the event at the heart of the Christian faith that gives us hope. Christ died. The explanation Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was righteous. He was the righteous one. Unlike the rest of us, he committed no sins. He was the one human being who never deserved to die. 
and yet he did die. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. There was a great transaction, a great swap. Uh, The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, the righteous one, died as a punishment for the sins of the unrighteous. The death penalty deserved by all of humanity was transferred and taken once and for all by Jesus, the one person who never deserved it. That great swap, that great transaction, the righteous for the unrighteous, as Jesus dies the death that others deserve. And the outcome the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The death of Jesus means that you and I don't have to die. It means our sin no longer separates us from God if we trust in him, so that we can come to him and enter our relationship with him now that will last forever. That is the heart of Christianity, the cross of Christ. That is why we don't need to fear Because in the biggest possible sense, if you trust in Jesus, you have already been blessed permanently, forever. He died to bring you to God. And once he's done that, nothing can take you away. You're safe. Now and for all eternity, the Bible says no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No one can snatch us from his hands. Jesus has already won your salvation. So, What's the worst that can happen? What is the worst that a hostile world can throw at Christians? Insults, slander, persecution, violence, torture, death. Yes, those things are truly horrific to experience. Dreadful. But the ultimate blessing of eternal life with God, won by Jesus for us on the cross can never be taken away. Even if you lose all of those things, you still have eternal life with God forever. The cross has done it all. Because Jesus died, we don't need to fear. Jesus saves. Let me just say what I think is going on in verses 19 to 20. Um, We're given another picture here of how Jesus saves. We're taken back to the time of Noah. We're told that Jesus preached in the Spirit to the spirits in prison who disobeyed in the time of Noah. Now, what does that mean? Uh, There's a lot of debate. Uh, Some have said that Jesus, after his death, went and preached either to rebellious, long-dead people or to rebellious angels. Uh, Now, that's possible. I think the the arguments are slightly finely balanced between the, the scholars as they try and work out what this means. But although that is possible and uh, intriguing, rather, um, I think there's a, a better explanation that is less strange and also, uh, I think, more importantly, fits Peter's context better. And I think what, what Peter's saying is that Christ was with Noah spiritually as he preached to a hostile world. As Noah faced a hostile world, Christ was with him. Now, what do I think that... Uh, In chapter 1, verse 11 of 1 Peter, uh, there's a mention of the Spirit of Christ being in the prophets, uh, pointing to Christ when he predicted uh, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Spirit of Christ was at work in the Old Testament prophets. That's one uh, bit of the picture. There's also a comment in 2 Peter about Noah being a preacher of righteousness. So put those two things together. I think Christ was in Noah as he preached to a hostile world. don't know if that makes sense to you. So here's the picture. There was Noah preaching in the face of ridicule. People around Noah saying, 
What on earth are you doing, building that stupid, enormous boat? There's no water for miles, you idiot. And no doubt Noah was feeling fearful, wondering, uh, did I hear rightly? Is, is this just a bit silly, what I'm doing here? But Christ was in him by the Spirit as he preached, just as he's in us as Christians today. And God saved Noah from that judgment, just as he saves us from judgment. Noah and his family, eight people in all, were kept safe in those floodwaters, says Peter. So Noah was saved because Christ was in him, with him, as he preached. Jesus saves. And you know what? It's even better for us than it was for Noah. Noah had to face that experience of going through the water. We've already been brought safely through the water, symbolically. Uh, That is what baptism symbolizes in verse 21, Peter says. Jesus has saved us completely already. When you're baptized, you you entered into this great picture. You were plunged into the water, perhaps, if, if it was done that way. You were brought back up. The water symbolizing judgment and death. And then we come up safely, symbolizing new life and freedom in Christ. When you think of your baptism, think, Jesus saves through the water, death, life. He saved me through that water. Christ has already died to save you, to bless you forever. It's not baptism that saves you. Baptism points to what Jesus did on the cross. The cross is the way that God will finally bless all Christians, even if our experience in this world is of hostility and we feel less than blessed in our experience. Whenever you feel afraid of the world's hostility, think of the cross. Maybe think of your baptism. Think, God has taken me through that water of judgment because Jesus died on the cross. I'm out the other side. My feet are on solid, dry ground. I'm safe. I can't sink. I can't drown. He's brought me through. Jesus saves. So we can live out our calling to bless the world, doing good, uh, because Jesus saves. As we finish, I've been reading this book, uh, Shining Like Stars. It's all about um, people who've taken the gospel to students around the world, in different countries all over the world. And uh, some of them have faced incredibly hostile environments. And they've chosen to go to countries where they will face terrible hostility in order to bless the world, in order to bring Jesus, to speak of Jesus to the world. Uh, I'll probably give a couple of other examples in the next few weeks from this book. But here's one to finish for today. Samuel Johnson, an American uh, in his 50s, uh, gave up all the comforts of home life in order to go to Mozambique, Now, at that time, Mozambique had just emerged from a civil war, but things were terribly dangerous. Uh, It was a very poor country. There was a lot of violence. It was a very dangerous place to be. Uh, But he went. Samuel Johnson went. He he was there for just a few years, and then he contracted malaria, and that killed him. Oh, dear. Why did he go? Why would you do such a thing when it's so, so, so dangerous? Well, he was interviewed uh, not long before he died. And uh, he said this. The University of Maputo here has only 4,000 students, and that's the main university in the whole of Mozambique. If, with God's help, I can establish a strong student witness here, I believe we can influence the direction of the government and the church life in the entire country. That is what keeps me going. He was determined to bless the world. And so his fears, he was able to overcome them. 
I don't know what his thought process was like as he was deciding to go to Mozambique and sacrifice so much. I imagine somewhere in his thoughts were these three things. I expect God's blessing. The Bible promises me that God will bless me as I go and bless the world. I don't know if it will be in this life. For him it wasn't. But God will bless. I fear Christ alone. I'm not scared of malaria. I'm not scared of civil war. I'm not scared of violence. More than anything else, I love, I fear, I hope in Christ. And I remember, above all, Jesus saves. He's died on the cross. That can be never taken away. Jesus has saved him. Samuel Johnson, right now, is in God's presence, without fear, because Jesus saved. And those same thoughts can become part of our own mindset, our own thinking. As we seek to bless a hostile world, yes, can it be fearful? There, there might be terrible times. But we don't need to fear. God will bless. Fear Christ alone, because Jesus saves. Let's pray. Father, we want to come to you in honesty about the state of our hearts and the fear that we so often feel. A fear that prevents us from living how we should live, speaking how we should speak. Prevents us from being the ambassadors of Christ that we should be. Father, we're sorry for those times when fearing what everyone else fears takes over. Please, Lord, would you help us to set aside Christ as first in our hearts, as Lord of our lives. And knowing that he saves, knowing that we will ultimately be blessed in him, would that transform our everyday life so that we can get out of bed each day and say to ourselves, Jesus died for me. He's blessed me forever so I can go and bless the world. In Jesus' name, amen.